Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow. And I'm Derek Lavasser. Today, we're diving into part four of the Michelle Lawless case. I think we should just get into it. We only have one part left after this. Um, we're wrapping that up before we head to CrimeCon, uh, tying it up in a neat little bow, I hope. And uh, hopefully we'll have a better understanding of where we stand on this case once all the parts are out. Exactly. Let's go with it. We're ready. So in February of 1993, four inmates at the Cape Girardeau County Jail all suddenly began telling the same story. And that story was that Josh Kieser had killed Michelle Lawless. These men were 17-year-old Sean Mangus, 17-year-old Kelly Church, 24-year-old Chuck Weisinger, and 28-year-old Stephen Graw. Sean and Kelly had actually been charged together in an LSD deal gone wrong. Weisinger was facing charges of burglary and theft, and Stephen Graw was being held on a $50,000 bond after being charged with beating a homeless man who would go on to die from his injuries. Now, it seems the idea for the plan started with Sean Mangus. He figured that they could exchange information about Michelle's murder in exchange for deals on their sentences. And I guess that (laughs) the whole idea was nothing bad would come of it since they knew Josh wasn't responsible and he couldn't have done it. And then the police would soon figure that out. So that was their justification, I suppose. On March 1st, Highway Patrolman Don Windham and Deputy Brenda Schwitz interviewed 17-year-old Sean Mangus, who told them that he had seen Josh in January of 1993 at the home of Stacy Reed in Cape Girardeau, and he had heard Josh confess to killing a girl in Benton. Mangus's written confession read, quote, He asked me if I knew anything about a girl getting killed at the Benton exit. I told him I didn't know anything about it. He said somebody had me kill her or shoot her or hurt her, but I do remember him saying he shot her. He appeared to be crying, but the room was dark and I couldn't tell, end quote. Mangus claimed that he asked Josh if he was serious and Josh said he was. So after providing this information, Don Wyndham, he spoke to the Cape Girardeau prosecutor and suddenly there was a deal on the table for Sean Mangus. Having been originally charged with the Class A felony of first-degree robbery, a crime committed while Mangus was in possession of a firearm, he pleaded guilty to the reduced charge of stealing, which was a Class C felony. And instead of facing a 10-year minimum sentence, Mangus was given a one-year sentence. Next, Wyndham and Schwitz talked to Chuck Weisinger on March 3rd, and he seemed less eager to provide them with information at first. Initially, he said he didn't know anything about Michelle's murder, and when he finally did claim that he had heard Josh Kieser confess to shooting a girl, he gave the wrong location, naming Benton, Illinois, instead of Benton, Missouri. But by March 9th, 
9th, when the police had gotten Weisinger to give them a handwritten statement, he had more details. He claimed he'd seen Josh in the first or second week of January 1993 at the home of Stacy Reed. Chuck said he'd been at Stacy's all day when Sean and Josh arrived together in the early evening. And then Chuck said that he heard Josh say to Sean that he'd shot a girl off the highway at Benton. And Chuck said he thought that Josh was capable of murder because of the way he acted, the fact that he had the worst temper Chuck had ever seen, and because he always carried a gun. In fact, Chuck claimed to have seen Josh with all types of guns, from 22s to 38s to 9mm. Now, instead of receiving a 10-year sentence in prison, as he would have being a repeat offender, Chuck Weisinger walked away with three years in exchange for his information. Wyndham and Schwitz also spoke to Stephen Graw, who was originally from Chicago, where he claimed he was a member of the Latin Kings. And out of all the men we're talking about here, Graw had the longest and most colorful criminal history. Aggravated kidnapping, attempted armed robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, armed violence, violation of probation, possession of a controlled substance, and burglary. All of that before the age of 30, tells us that Stephen Graw was a busy boy and he had a detailed story to tell law enforcement. Graw claimed that he and Josh had talked about their initiations into the Latin Kings and he said, quote, Josh told me his initiation was shooting a man in the face with a 38 in South Kedzie in Chicago. He has a 45, a 357, a 22 automatic with a black finish and a sawed-off shotgun. He always carried a gun in his waistband around the back. He keeps a knife in his front pants pocket, end quote. Stephen Graw said he was at Stacy Reed's the night Josh confessed to Sean Mangus, and that night Josh had shown Graw a 38 Beretta that he pulled out of his waistband. Graw claimed that Josh was the Kankakee enforcer for the Kings, and in that role, he might have to kill someone or slap someone or rape someone. Stephen Graw said that Josh didn't have a car, but a girl he knew always let him use her hers. The car was a white car with damage on the rear right. Before giving information about Josh, Stephen Graw had been facing a $50,000 bond. Afterwards, his bond was reduced to $3,000 and he was released from the county jail. Even though, remember, he was in there for beating a homeless man to the point where this man later died. So I'm pretty sure that's what, manslaughter? (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty bad. On March 12th, 17-year-old Kelly Church was interviewed at the Cape Girardeau County Sheriff's Office, and he said, quote, Josh said he's in a gang called the Latin Kings and that he was going to get the gang's help to kill some people screwing with his mother. Josh said he was going to kill Amanda Drury's dad because he wouldn't let Josh see Amanda. Josh also said he met a girl on Broadway in Cape Gerardo that fucked him over and he was going to kill her, end quote. So we're going to talk about who Amanda Drury is in a minute. Kelly said that Josh had told him this in front of Sean Mangus at Stacy Reed's house, but he didn't know the name of the girl that Josh was allegedly going to kill. After giving this information, the charges against Kelly Church were dropped and he left town. So this is uh, this is an interesting topic that we're covering here because it's something that as a detective I dealt with a lot. So there's a few things you have to look out for. First off, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why are these individuals giving this information? What is the motive? What is the incentive? Most times when you have criminals like this uh, who are suddenly willing to provide information to help close another case, it's because they have something to gain. They have something that they're currently facing 
and they know that if they provide information for a case that may be bigger than the one they're involved in, they can get a reduction in their in their charges or in their sentencing, whatever it might be. So you always have to look through it from that scope where it's like, okay, if they're willing to tell me this and they weren't willing to come forward before, is it because what they're telling me is actually true? Or is it because they know that if they provide something of value, especially in a, a publicized case like this, it's going to help them get off in their current cases? So, you know, are they willing to lie to enhance what they have in order to make it enticing enough for a detective or a prosecutor to say, hey, if you give us information on this particular case, we'll absolutely work with you? Because they know that if you say, hey, I know who stole a bike off the corner street a week ago. Detectives are going to say, "Okay, well, great. You report that when you get out of prison. You need to provide. You need to sell them a bigger fish, right? You got to mm-hmm. give them something that's more worthy than what you currently offer them." So, anytime this happens, regardless of how good the information is, you have to check it and recheck it again because they will give you something or fill in the blanks in order to in- entice you as a detective to help them out. And you have to understand that more than likely they're going to embellish in order to really sell this story. That's one element of it, the the motive, the incentive behind it. The other thing you have to watch out for, which isn't talked about as much, when I was in narcotics, we were going after organizations. We were going after large groups of people who were more like little cells, right? So there'd be like a crew over here, a crew over here, a crew over there. And although they were all somewhat connected they all had hierarchies within their own groups. So when it came time, when we came crashing down on them, when we were kicking indoors and we pinned someone, as soon as that person was in a pinch, they may be willing to roll on someone. And then another cell with a different person will also be willing to roll on someone. But when they finally do, it's usually a person who is not high in the ranks. They're going to give up this. They're going to give up. They're going to give you a breadcrumb. They're going to start small and give you the low-hanging fruit in order to try to give you enough so that you leave them alone without them giving up someone of importance to their organization because obviously that's going to come back on them. Why do I bring this up here? Well, you have a few different people saying Josh's name and you have to wonder why. And I know that you've said it. I don't know if it was during our conversations or in the episode. I sometimes lose track of that. But Josh was a part of the Latin Kings, but not like a full member. He was more by association, right? Is that what you have told me? Was that in in episode or outside episode? That was in that was in episode. Okay. Uh, he was, I, I believe, a a full full fledged member. But he said because of his, uh, I suppose, relationship with his cousins who were members, he didn't have to go through the whole like initiation, initiation process. process. Yeah. I thought we had established that, like, and maybe this was from him, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he, although he was in, he wasn't deep, and he wasn't doing a lot of the things. Well, yeah. Well, he was young, too, you know, so probably, like, yeah, he, he probably wasn't, you know, in, in. In, in. Yeah. So you have to wonder why they're all picking Josh. And one of the reasons that I found in my experience is that, again, like I just said, they will pick someone who's expendable to the organization, to the but club, to the But these guys crew. weren't in the Latin Kings besides that one dude from, from Chicago. I'm not saying they were in the, I'm not saying they were in the Latin Kings, but they might've been in, you don't have to be in the gangs to be working together on certain criminal activity. We found mm-hmm. numerous times where 
we'd have guys, local street gangs that were working in coordination with other gangs in order to accomplish a certain thing. Obviously, it's a collaborative effort where there's an exchange of money or drugs, whatever it might be, where believe it or not, they're their own little LLCs, their own little entities. Mm -hmm. And so if someone's lower in that hierarchy, they might be willing to give up that person because they're not going to go give you the big fish unless they really have to do that in order to get out of what they have. One final element, because I know I'm talking a lot here. The other element of that may be something here, and I, I don't know Josh from a hole in the wall, but I do wonder if this is a combination of them going after the low-hanging fruit and maybe conversations that Josh had had with individuals that he did associate with where we have situations where guys will you know, peacock a little bit and say certain things that they would do or have done in order to gain street credibility. There's a lot of times where I've been in situations with street gangs where guys are out there claiming bodies, as they would call it, marking bodies that they were responsible for. Mm -hmm. When I know for a fact they were at their auntie's auntie's house for a cookout eating, you know, s'mores the the day that happened. But, I, you know, they're telling their friends or inferring indirectly that they might have or maybe had something to do with it. Again, the same thing you sometimes see in the prisons, right? Taking credit for things you didn't do in order to get that street credibility. Again, not saying that's what Josh did and that's why they're going after him, but it could be something where Josh had been bragging about the firearms that he owned and they kind of put two and two together, even though there was no real correlation between Josh owning firearms and Michelle Lawless's murder. I'm just, I'm trying to understand. I don't think he owned any guns. He was only 17. Not saying he did, but he doesn't have to own guns to say he owned guns. Right. Yeah. He might You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. But this dude, like this dude says, oh, he's always got a gun on him. You know? Again, they're embellishing the story because they can't just tell you the truth. They have to give you a grain of truth, which might've been Josh saying, yeah, I own guns. Two, he's always got a gun on him. If you stop him right now, he'll have one on him. I promise you. If I had a dollar for every time I had an informant tell me right now, hey, if you go stop so-and-so right now in the corner, you'll get a gun off the street. Guarantee it. But if you get that gun, you got to let me walk on this. Have you ever seen him with it before? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll go grab the kid. No gun on him. It happened. Like I would be a rich man if that were the case. Because again, they're going to pump up the story to incentivize you to go out there and do something. And they're like, hey, worst case scenario, they go out there and they don't find a gun. At least at least it was worth the effort. But if they do, I get to go home. So they have nothing to lose by lying. They'll just say, oh, you know what? He usually does. So there could be a lot of things going on here. I don't know. Or maybe it's just a coordinated effort. Like why would these three different individuals say four, this? Four people. Four individuals yeah. say this. You know, who really knows? But I do think that there could be a little bit of everything, a little bit of everything going on here. And again, I'm not there. I don't know what these guys were thinking. I don't know the conversations that they had with Josh over the years at, you said, Stacy's house? Yeah, they knew him from like the Cape uh, Girardeau area. Um, they they would hang out together, you know, when he was kind of like running the streets and didn't really have a right. home. This is when he fell in with these dudes. But here's my question. They're all in the same county jail together, right? Right. They basically all know each other outside of jail of in some way. And now they're coming forward with, you know, kind of eerily the exact same story. My question is, because you said you've been in this position a lot, right? Unfortunately. What, what, at what point, like, do you decide 
to give a deal on a sentence or whatever, a transfer to a, a cushier facility, whatever, in exchange for information, like right when they give it to you, because it seems like that's kind of what happened, you know, like right when they give it to you, or do you wait to see if that information actually holds any water before just like cutting them deals left and right? No, you definitely are not cutting a deal. You're not signing. There has to be an outcome for that deal to go that's into what effect. I thought. Right? right. There has to be something that happens based on their testimony or based on their information. There has to be results. Right. And I'll also say this because I didn't even go here because, again, you you spoke about a lot there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had said earlier and I forgot the name of the person. I think it was one of the first people you mentioned, but they had a story that wasn't that accurate. And then by Chuck the time Weisinger, they gave a written yeah. statement, it was a lot more accurate. And that's a problem, too. And I think a lot of us can take away what happened there. Right. You had yeah, someone, there's an inference there to be you had at. someone filling in the blanks for him. Right. As right. he's writing down this statement, which probably wasn't on a recording. So you get one statement when they're just kind of regurgitating shit that they've heard. And then you have another statement when police are sitting there going through the written statement with them, knowing what elements they need in order for it to be deemed credible. But to answer your question more directly, when someone gives you information, you need to have them provide some type of guilt knowledge, some type of information that's not publicly already known. And you want to have them fill in blanks that you've been asking questions about going forward and then actually have that deliver when you go and investigate it. And all three of these individuals should be able to provide information that is not publicly known. But once you start digging into it, you realize that what they're saying, because you can prove it in some way, shape or form, is factual. And they're all not in a position where they can be in the jailhouse or in the prison communicating with each other on a daily (laughs) basis, make sure that they're cross-referencing their stories. So there's a lot going on here, but if I had to take a, you know, a guess based on just this first portion of the story that we're talking about, police had a hard on for not only solving this case, but for probably more specifically Josh. And as soon as they heard this name, they were, it was basically just positive reinforcement of what they already thought. They were just looking for, what's that word I'm looking for? That affirmation, that, um, Confirmation. Um, confirmation bias. Yeah. You know, where they, they got a little bit of something that kind of sounded appealing and they and they fell all over it. And that does happen with police sometimes, too. If if you bring in a certain name that they've been trying to get for a while and they know that you've been trying to get them for a while, they may throw that name out there because they realize it's a big fish and it's someone you're you're trying to to get. So there could be a lot of dynamics going on here. We don't know the relationships that these officers had with Josh prior to this and what their feelings were towards him and what would have caused them to um, go forward so quickly with this without verifying the information that they were being told. So um, it doesn't seem that there was a lot of relationship between Josh and the law enforcement in the Benton area. Um, There there are some things that that Chief Bill Farrell may have known Josh's mother and tried to like get her to help him out on a case before and she hadn't done it. But I think at the end of the day, if if you want to know, like as soon as the cops heard that he was in a gang, that was it. You know, like for them, they were like, well, and, and even if it wasn't like a purposeful, like we don't really care if this kid did it or not. And more of a, well, if he's in a gang, he's violent. And if he's violent, he's able to do this. And we can't figure out who else might have done this, you know, <laughs> so this makes sense and this adds up right now. It's better than what we have, which is nothing. 
yeah, I'm sure it didn't help. I'm sure him being associated with a with a gang, a violent gang like the Latin Kings, definitely did not help his cause. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like there would probably be more than that, but that's definitely not a good start. Where again, Latin Kings are known for being very violent, and mm-hmm. and it, they there's killers amongst them for sure. I don't think that's going out on a limb saying that. So uh, right. when they hear that this guy's in a gang, it's not a, it's not a hot take. <laughs> it's not a hot take. So. Uh, that could be part of it. That's the thing, right? Like we're hearing about the story and we're trying to get into the minds of not only the the witnesses, I'm doing that in air quotes, right? The confident, the, the informants, as well as the investigators interviewing those informants. And we're not mind readers. We can't do that. All we can do is, is talk about it, speculate, give anecdotal experience and show how it's sometimes related to this type of situation in a certain way, shape or form. But again, every situation is different. Every person is different. And the motives behind doing certain things may sometimes only be known by the individual doing it. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right. So remember that all four of these guys pretty much said they had heard Josh confess at Stacy Reed's house or they had heard that someone had heard him confess at Stacy Reed's house. So obviously the police are going to go and talk to Stacy Reed in Cape Gerardo. She was also a member of the Latin Kings. She had just joined up the past December, and she said she'd known Josh for seven years. When he'd been in town the past winter, he'd stayed with her in December and January, and the last time she'd seen him was February. Stacy said that she did not think Josh was capable of murder, but he did have a temper, and he told her that he'd gone to the Teen Challenge for attempted murder, which is kind of what you were saying earlier about like peacocking and stuff. Like that's not why he went to the Teen Challenge, and I'm not saying that he actually did say that to her. Like I would have no way of knowing if he did or not, but if he did, that's not why he went to the Teen Challenge. So you know, it, it may be like yeah, getting some street cred. Maybe even trying to impress a girl. Who knows? And listen, it happens all the time. Not only in these situations, like you just said, trying to impress a girl. We we sometimes, or trying to impress a guy, we sometimes embellish stories Mm. for the sake of building credibility quicker. Right? And if there's no way to discredit what you're saying, there may be some truth to what you're putting out there. But then, you know, you add a couple layers to it to enhance the story. We're all guilty of it, you know, once in a while in our life. So um, in this particular case, it may have been something where you know, one little thing was said and was embellished by others to get them in the door with investigators. It might not even been him. It could have been them adding layers to the story Mm -hmm. to make it juicy enough for a detective to bite. Yeah, because Stacy said, no, I've never seen Josh with a gun, you know? So all these dudes are like, oh yeah, he's got a gun and a knife and this, this, and then he's talking about all these guns. And she's like, I've known him for seven years. And I have never seen him with a gun, which I think as a police officer, that should stand out to you. You'd be like, hey, the four guys who were together in jail and are all having the same story all say that they've seen Josh with a gun. But Stacey Reed, who it's her house and she's known him for seven years, has never seen him with a gun. So maybe there's some like uh, contrariness happening here. Now, Stacy also mentioned a girl named Amanda Drury. And as far as I know, Amanda Drury is not related to Wes Drury of the sheriff's office. But I don't know. It, it is. It does seem like she was from Benton or one of her parents lived in Benton. So I'm not sure if she's related to him some way distantly or, or whatever. But 
they have the same last name. And Stacy said she didn't know much about Amanda besides that Josh had been like seeing her for a couple months the past summer. And he had told Stacy that he thought that he and Amanda were going to get married. Now, Josh had actually met Amanda at the end of May 1992. She had been with her friend, Christy Nail, cruising down Broadway in Christy's white Plymouth Duster when the two girls had picked up Josh and Kelly Church. Josh had ended up sitting next to Amanda in the back seat. The two hit it off. And after that, Josh, Kelly, Amanda, and Christy got together often that summer driving around in Christy's car since neither Josh nor Kelly had a car or a driver's license. Now, it was Christy and her white car that Stephen Graw had referred to during his interview with law enforcement. And according to Graw, Christy would often let Josh drive her car or even take it when he needed to go somewhere, like to Sykeston, to buy drugs. Josh and Amanda had shared a fun summer together, but they ended up breaking up on August 2nd when they got into an argument at the REO Speedwagon concert. According to Josh, he was young. He thought he was in love. He became a little possessive and angry when he found out Amanda was talking to other guys. And that was that. You know, it's over just like that. So Josh would later say that he had driven Christie's car before, but never without Christie and Amanda inside of it. He certainly had never taken it on his own. Now, after breaking up with Amanda, Josh hung around town for a bit, but he returned to Kankakee towards the end of August or the beginning of September, and he had not come back to southeast Missouri until after Christmas. He certainly had not been there in November when Michelle Lawless was murdered in her car at the Benton exit. So investigators heard Stephen Grosse white car, and they immediately felt that it was very important to somehow prove that Christy Nail's white Plymouth was the car that Mark Abbott had seen the night of Michelle's murder in the Cutmark parking lot. So they went to speak to 17-year-old Christy, and she told them she didn't believe it was possible that Josh had used her car on the evening of November 7th, 1992, because she'd gone to see a movie in Sykeston with her boyfriend that night. She said she picked up her boyfriend in her car, they'd gone to the movies, she dropped him off after the movie and then she went home and she arrived around like midnight, 1215, which was confirmed by her mother. Christy claimed the next morning when she got up, her car was parked in the exact same spot and the gas gauge hadn't moved. However, there was a catch. Christy did keep a spare key to her car in a magnetic box that was hidden underneath her car near the rear bumper. Her friend, Amanda Drury, knew about the spare key because Christy remembered a time the previous October she'd been at a party at Amanda's mother's house, and um, she ended up not being able to find the spare key in the magnetic box. But later, Amanda returned both of those things to Christy, and she never gave her an explanation as to why she had them. Christy also said that she'd visited Amanda in Sykeston in February, and since that time, she once again could not locate the spare key to her vehicle. On March 5th, Christy Nail's car was processed, and several tiny spots on the driver's side and passenger side armrests reacted to luminol, which, as you know, suggests the possible presence of blood. The possible presence of blood doesn't necessarily mean there is blood there definitively. The samples were sent to the state crime lab for further analysis, while the Scott County Sheriff's Office continued to try and connect Josh Keezer to the murder of Michelle Lawless. On March 5th, Chief Farrell, Chief Bill Farrell, Deputy Brenda Schwitz, and Donna Windham interviewed Amanda Drury, and she claimed that Josh knew about the spare key that Christy kept near her rear bumper because he'd been with them one time when Christy had retrieved it. Now, Christy Nail would later testify during the trial that she could not remember Josh ever being around when she had used her spare key. On March 11th, Don Windham and Brenda Schwitz showed Mark Abbott a series of photos. 
the first were six photos of men, and they asked if he could pick out the man he'd seen in the Cut Mart parking lot that fateful night in September. Don Wyndham's report claimed that Mark picked Josh's photo out of this lineup without hesitation. But here was the thing. Josh's picture was the only one that was black and white, and it was also the only one that was a mugshot. So obviously Josh's picture is going to stand out amongst the other ones. And I think we had something similar in the West Memphis 3 case when um, they brought people in to identify Damien out of like a lineup. And they said that there was a bunch of other pictures, but Damien's was in the center and it was way bigger. And it was obviously like that they were trying to sort of guide people towards Damien's picture. And in this situation, I'm not saying that it did happen, but in this situation, Farrell and Schwitz could have been trying to give Mark Abbott an indication of who they wanted him to choose without having to verbally say it. That's worst case scenario, right? That's just the corruption of it where they they did this deliberately. But I've also said to you in the West Memphis 3 case that that's part of the prerequisites for creating a photo pack. You want to have all the individuals not only match the description Mm -hmm. that the witness has relayed to you, Mm -hmm. but you want to make sure that the backgrounds are all the same. They're all similar in size. And if you're going to use one person with a photo lineup in the back, like, you know, a a chart behind them, they all have to do it. And, and, you know, if we in our police department, we still had the metal placards. So -hmm. whenever we taught our patrolmen to take the pictures, we would always teach them to hold the placard uh, below like this area here. If you're looking on YouTube, I'm basically pointing like a little bit below my chest. And the reason for that was so that if I needed that photo for a photo lineup, I could crop that out and still have enough to make all the photos look the same. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes... (laughs) We get these rookies, they come in and they take these photos and they got the guy holding up the placard up here at his chin. chin. (laughs) And it's like, dude, what am I going to do with that? I can't even crop that out and use it later for for this, for the, for the, for the, uh, for the robbery or whatever, because he's got a placard covering his chin. There's no way not to infer that he's been arrested before. Yeah. So, yeah. Which I mean, can cause a bias in somebody without them even consciously knowing absolutely. that it was. Yeah. Absolutely. They look in there. It's a photo lineup with a bunch of regular people and one guy who's been, you know, been arrested for something already. And that absolutely can play in effect. In, in most cases, I'll be interested to see how it plays out here. But that would that that photo pack being shown to a jury or being displayed by a defense team would automatically get it you know, thrown out or it would it would completely take away the credibility of it. Well, Mark Abbott was also shown a series of eight photos of hatchback-style cars, and reportedly he picked out Christy Nails Plymouth Duster as being the one he had seen in the parking lot while he was trying to call 911, which doesn't make a lot of sense because, I mean, I get, I think her car was like an 88 or an 89, and I remember in one of his many iterations of what he had seen that night, Mark Abbott said it was a newer car. And Michelle was murdered in 1992. So I don't know if like an 88 or an 89 car would be considered a newer car in 1992. I kind of figure like something that year or even the previous year. But No, I would still be considered new. I got a 2016 right now, Ford F-150. And it doesn't look much different than the body styles from 2023. Minor differences for someone who knows what they're looking for. Yeah, but for. this was back then. Remember back then, like every time a car was released, it was completely different. And now they just don't hmm. run out of ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, but based on the condition of the car, how well it's taken care of, it still can be considered new. Someone who's yeah. not super familiar with cars may not know if it's the newest model of that make, but still may think, oh, you know what? It's good shape, no rust, no dings, no dents. 
Mm. I'd call that new. Okay. I mean, I feel like didn't one of the um, informants say that there was like damage to the right rear bumper that Mark Abbott never mentioned? In an earlier episode? No, just at the beginning of this episode, one of the informants, I forget which one, I think it was Stephen Graw, said, oh, he knows a girl. He doesn't have a car, but Josh knows a girl who has a white car that she lets him drive, and it's it's got, like, damage to the, the rear bumper. So, you know, I don't know how well it was taken care of. I had new cars that have dents on them. I don't even remember you saying that part because we were giving me so, a download of so much information. I won't even lie. That, that, that little piece of information completely went over my head. Mm-hmm. But, um... All I'm you could have new cars is, that are dinged. Is are you saying what are you trying to all infer? I'm here? Just saying say what you is I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say. Yeah. How did he pick that car out of the eight photos? It once again feels like maybe he was led there. It doesn't make any sense because you could say like, oh, he picked. Well, how's that even picture. an inference at this point? They picked out a photo of Josh and with him and with a mugshot. And yeah, but you else. could say like, oh. Well, he he was drawn to Josh's picture because it looked different than the others. Why would he have been drawn to the picture of Christy Nail's car? Because as far as I can tell, it looked just like the other ones, unless somebody was sort of once again kind guiding of him, him towards it. But do we know Chris- for certain the car, the pictures looked exactly like the other ones? I don't know. Probably. I mean, I for no all we know, idea. the other ones were pictures of car- cars and magazines. And then there was one like real <laughs> picture that looked like surveillance footage that could be from a crime scene. Or it's like Christie's white car, and then the all the other cars are like red. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're like, the, which the, car did you see, Josh? Which that's one? That's why the photo packs <laughs> and all these things have to be kept and yeah. have to be signed, and the folders that they're put in should be signed as well, so that down the road, whether you're the prosecution or you're the defense team, you can request to see those photo arrays to see if it was objective and unbiased and, and fair and impartial to your client. Well, maybe it wasn't like that back then. Maybe it was just the the literal wild, wild west. Yeah. No, I, I don't even think it's an inference at this point. I think when we start with the suspect being the only person that it, that's, it, it, you know, it's his mugshot and everyone else is just a normal photo. I'm saying there's a spectrum there where it could be negligence, but that doesn't mean that's what I believe. I think these guys probably knew what they were doing. And that's why they did it that way. And I would, I would, based on what we know about the photo array of of the suspects, I would say that they probably did something similar with the cars. Yeah, that's my opinion. Mine as well. Okay, is that what you we're, we got there finally? Yeah, we got there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. So Sheriff Bill Farrell, at this point, he's like positive that they found at least one of the people responsible for Michelle Lawless's murder. And I mean, he said he was positive. I don't know if he was or if Josh was just like an easy scapegoat and he was trying to make the pieces fit. I couldn't tell you for sure. But he told the papers like we're we're positive we got we got the right guy. And the best part was Josh was already in the process of being arrested in Kankakee for a completely unrelated offense. A warrant had been issued for Josh's arrest the same day that Mark Abbott had picked his photo out of a lineup. Reportedly, Josh had gone to the home of Amanda's new boyfriend, Randy Dal Askew, and gotten into an altercation with Randy's father, Randy Sr. Josh said he'd gone there because Amanda was living there at the time, and I guess 
guess he'd gotten word from her that she wanted to see him. But when he showed up, Randy Sr. was there and he told his wife, go get my gun. And then his wife brought him a long barreled shotgun or a rifle. Three men who'd been with Josh that night had told the police that both Josh and Randy Sr. had been armed, but Josh claims he did not have a gun. He'd only reached towards his pocket and claimed he had one because he was scared of this much older man who actually did have a gun in his hands. Josh was arrested and charged with second-degree assault on March 15th, and his father went to the court with bail money to get Josh out, but before the arrangements could be made, the judge got a call from Missouri officials who requested that Josh be held there without bail on a governor's warrant. On April 7th, Trooper Don Windham and Deputy Dan Hinton collected Josh from Kankakee and returned with him to Scott County. During the drive, Don Windham claimed that Josh admitted to being a member of the Latin Kings, but any other claims against him were false. So basically, Don Windham must have said, like, oh, this is what we're picking you up for, and this is what people have said about you. And Josh was like, yeah, I mean, I, I am a part of that gang, but, like, I didn't kill anybody. I don't have a gun in my pocket. You know, everything else that was said was not true. Actually, Josh said the only time he'd ever fired a gun was when he was in the Boy Scouts, at which time he'd been told he was a good shot. Now, it seems when Wyndham wrote about this remark in his report a week later, it was sort of posed as Josh claiming to be a good shot in relation to his membership in the gang. And the whole Boy Scouts part was never mentioned. Once again, some, you know, lacking context, some creative... Um, negation of certain facts to make things sound worse than they were. Was it purposeful? Was it just negligent? Was it confirmation bias? I don't know, but either way it happened. Wyndham claimed that Josh said he didn't even know Michelle Lawless or that she had been murdered, and when he was asked if he had done it, Josh responded simply no, and then suddenly became very quiet and would not speak again. And Wyndham sort, sort of writes this like it's suspicious. He was just like, no, and then he wouldn't talk. But it's like, what do you expect? You know, you just asked this kid if he killed a girl and he said no. But now he realizes like what you're there for and he's just going to shut down. He's not going to talk as any good lawyer would would instruct him to do. When Josh arrived in Scott County, he was charged with first-degree murder, and his bond was set at $50,000. And as was customary, a preliminary hearing was scheduled, but that would never happen because Sheriff Bill Farrell wanted the case brought to a grand jury. So Christy Baker Neal, who was the acting Scott County prosecutor at the time, she removed the hearing from the docket and began putting together a grand jury case, which was actually a difficult task for Neal for several reasons. One, she was just the acting prosecutor. She was young. She was green. She was brand new to the job. She'd never prosecuted a grand jury case before, probably hadn't really worked on a murder case before. But two, this case was greatly lacking evidence. There was no proof that Josh Kieser knew Michelle Lawless. There was no physical evidence that tied Josh to the scene of the crime. No fingerprints, no blood evidence, no murder weapon, nothing on Michelle, nothing in Christy Nail's car or on Josh's leather jacket. And several people had claimed to have seen Josh on the night of Michelle's murder hundreds of miles away in Kankakee. The grand 
grand jury was convened anyways, and it consisted of 19 witnesses, including Sean Mangus and Stephen Graw, who were two of the jailhouse informants, Amanda Drury, Leon Lamb, and of course, Mark Abbott, the star witness, the only person who could place Josh in Benton on November 7th, 1992. The grand jury ended up issuing a true bill charging Josh with first-degree murder and armed criminal action on June 29th. And for the life of me, I just don't understand how. And as we know, grand jury proceedings are private. They're kept, you know, sealed. We don't really know what happened, but... Yeah, that's just for the indictment. I just don't understand, like, based on what evidence. Basically, it would have been Mark Abbott's identification of Josh at the crime scene because, like I said, no physical evidence. People who saw Josh in a different state (laughs) that night... Uh, I, well, just, I think I, I think at that point I think at that point it's pretty one sided where information is being put mm-hmm. forward and not not tested or not questioned right mm-hmm. so if you're a jury and you're seeing all these witnesses different people saying the same story uh, one person identifying him as being there and then these photo arrays identifying not only the per- the suspect but also his vehicle or his girlfriend's vehicle or was it his girlfriend or a girl he knew that he was friends with. So yeah, I don't I don't want to overstep here. Christy Nail was the friend of Amanda Drury, who I guess was Josh's girlfriend that right. summer. So yeah. when you have all this evidence being put forward and it's being taken at face value, then I can see how you would get to that true bill. You would get to that indictment. But obviously there's layers to it and there's things that are probably not being brought up at grand jury that may bring into question not only the, the testimony, but also the identifications. Okay, but I mean, you have Christy Nail saying like, I don't think he took my car. It was parked in the same place when I woke up the next morning. The gas gauge hadn't moved. So does the prosecution basically just decide who they're going to put in front of the grand jury? And if somebody like Christy Nail had information or said things that kind of went against their narrative, because could they just decide not to put her up as a witness? Like, is that how it works? Yeah, that's that's my understanding of it, too. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but from what I understand, when when you have a grand jury, especially a, a, a secret grand jury, prosecutors are presenting the evidence they have, witness testimony, et cetera, and then the jury will decide they'll vote as to whether or not they're going to find uh, a true bill. They're going to indict the person, and then at that point, the person is charged, and it will go to trial. Now, if you have someone who can contradict or provide exculpatory evidence that would be at trial when the defense would bring them forward. That's my understanding. But again, not a lawyer. The prosecutors or someone else would be much more equipped to handle that question. So from what we can gather, a grand jury is pretty much one-sided. It's held in secret. Usually the person who is the subject of the grand jury, the defendant in this case, might not even know that it's happening. Yeah, that that happens a lot. Yep, that absolutely happens a lot. Because if you think about it, it's really no different than if if the case happens right away, where within a day or two, we're gathering information as investigators, we will put together a report, an affidavit, right? Where we'll Mm -hmm. have different things that we do or different things that we find, and we'll lay it out in chronological order. And then I will drive down to the judge's offices or even their home, some cases, And we'll have an affidavit signed for a person's arrest without their knowledge. Mm -hmm. They're not made aware of that arrest affidavit until it's signed by the judge and we show up at their house. So with a grand jury hearing, it's a little different. In most cases, it's a bigger case or some time has passed 
where there's a little bit more of a scrutiny put on it because, you know, you have a lot more chain of custody issues. You're, you have different sources coming in. It may be a more robust case where it's not as, you know, clear cut. That's where you would want to have a grand jury look at it, a group of this person's peers, look at the evidence, review it and, and tell you whether or not they believe you have enough. Yeah, because a lot of the times I've heard about grand juries being convened, it was like the prosecution and law enforcement thinking, do we have enough to bring this to trial? Yeah, you're not wrong. And I, I unfortunately, have been in a grand jury hearing before uh, <laughs> for me. And uh, most of you know what that is at this point. If you don't, someone in the comments will tell you. But it's it's something where, yeah, they don't know if you have enough yet to indict someone. So they will have someone come forward. They try to get independent people. In my case, it was 20 citizens, right? And they got to ask me as many questions as they wanted, as random as they wanted. And it's a very unnerving feeling, but that's what they do to, because these people have no incentive to protect you or defend you. Mm -hmm. They're just normal citizens, a group of your peers who are deciding based on the facts that have been put forward, whether or not you should stand trial for the charge that you're potentially going to be charged with. Yeah, but you were present. Josh wasn't present for his, it looks like. Yes, exactly right. Mine was a different set of circumstances, but the the premise of it was still there. But yes, yeah, there are many cases where there's individuals out there who don't even know that there was a grand jury convened against them at some point, yeah. and it may have came back no true bill. Uh -huh. And that's the other thing. There's no responsibility for the prosecution or the investigators to go to this person and say, hey, Stephanie, just so you know, we brought our case to court to try to get you indicted. It didn't go through. So, <laughs> you know, you dodged the bullet there. There's just you just might never know about it. Also, there's instances where the prosecution will bring something to the grand jury. The grand jury will say, we think you should indict. And the prosecutor can still say, well, I'm not going to. And that happened with the Ramseys. Remember in the John Bonet Ramsey case? There yep. was a grand jury convened that said, yeah, we think there's enough to like put. I think it was. um Jambonet's mother, if not her mother and father, on trial for some involvement in what had happened to her, and the prosecutor declined to prosecute. Well, I think you just said it too. I might be repeating what you said, but sometimes prosecutors can do it to test their case yeah. before actually going to trial. So yeah, they might have said, "Okay, why wouldn't you do that then?" <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, you can go there, you get the indictment, but. It's a there's a difference. There's a bigger threshold, right? Because th think about it. There's no defense for this person, so it's basically one side of the argument. So yeah, you may in a grand jury setting get an indictment, but you have to also understand your case and the weak points of it, and know that if it goes to trial after they're indicted, there's going to be another side to that coin. There's going to be a defense team who's not only going to be picking apart your case but also doing their own independent investigation to find their own witnesses and their own evidence that contradicts what you've provided. So bigger threshold when you're going to a trial and also in a trial, you're in a fight against someone else where at grand jury, it's more of just a one-sided thing where you're putting forward what you have and, and hoping for the best, but different beast when you got to go to trial and you got someone on the other side who's contesting or debating everything you put forward. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. 
Right. So realizing that this case would need more than a public defender could offer, Josh's family scraped together everything they could to hire Albert Lowe's, a Cape Girardeau attorney from the firm Lowe's and Drush. Lowe's hired David Rosner, a recent graduate from the University of Missouri Law School who had not even taken the bar exam yet. Lowe's wanted Rosner to go back to the men who had claimed they had heard Josh confess to Michelle's murder and re-interview them. When Rosner talked to him on June 26th, Sean Magnus kept his story pretty much the same, but Chuck Weisinger completely recanted, stating, quote, The story we told about Josh's confession wasn't true. We were just trying to get a better deal. We didn't think it would get that far. End quote. Weisinger provided David Rosner with a written statement where he explained that it had all started when he'd been sharing a cell with Sean Mangus and Chuck had been talking to Sean, telling him, like, oh, I'm facing a 10 year sentence. This sucks. And Sean told Chuck, listen, I'm already in the process of a plan that can probably help us both. Sean said that he'd already told the police that Josh had confessed to killing the Benton girl. All Chuck had to do was support his story and then they would both get deals. Sean even gave Chuck all the information so that their stories would match up. Chuck Weisinger wrote, quote, Josh Keezer never said this. He never said that he killed a girl in Benton. Even though it was a complete lie, I decided to take Sean's story and tell it to the police to see if I could also work at a deal on my sentencing, end quote. Weisinger had more to tell, though, claiming that he'd been told by Don Wyndham that he and Morley Swingle, who was the Cape Girardeau prosecutor, they were tight and he could work something out for him. Weisinger had also been brought to the Scott City Sheriff's Office to speak with Bill Farrell, and he said that Wyndham and Farrell had a stack of papers on the desk which they had left in his view, with Sean Mangus's name on the papers as well as statements that Sean had made regarding Josh Keezer. Weisinger said that he felt they just wanted him to tell them that Josh did it or that he'd heard Josh say he did it. And Weisinger said he, quote, did my best to tell them what they wanted to hear, even though it wasn't true, end quote. Chuck Weisinger said that if he got some detail wrong, Wyndham and Farrell would prompt him or lead him with their notes from Sean Mangus. And at the end of the day, Weisinger said he'd never even seen Josh with a gun, and he knew that anything Sean Mangus or Stephen Grah told the police about Michelle Lawless was a lie, and they were only saying it so that they could get reduced sentences. David Rosner would go back and speak to Sean Mangus more than once, but Magnus did not waver from his original story until August 10th, at which time he provided a written statement saying, quote, I have reviewed my June 26, 1993 statement and must now come clean and tell the truth. Specifically, Joshua Keezer never in any way said he killed a girl in Benton or any other person for that matter. I have no reason to believe that Joshua Keezer killed anyone. My statement of June 26, 1993 to Rosner and also my previous statements to the police that Joshua Keezer said to me that he had killed a girl in Benton are completely false. Josh Keezer never said this, end quote. And then after this, Sean Mangus wrote some letters. He wrote a letter to Josh apologizing and saying he hoped Josh could find it in his heart to forgive both himself and Chuck Weisinger. Sean also wrote to Weisinger and he was like, listen, I told Josh's lawyer the truth. I gave him a statement. 
And then he wrote in this letter, quote, I read your statement too. You didn't have to blame it all on me though. Thanks. That really makes me look like a hell of a shithead, but at least we got the truth out. End quote. He wrote another letter to Chuck later saying pretty much the same thing, like, oh, thanks for making me look bad. And also saying that he hoped he didn't get charged with obstruction of justice because that would suck. This should have boded well for Josh and his defense. But as two witnesses were pulling back their stories, two more were stepping into their place with new stories. So after being arrested and charged for the murder of Michelle Lawless, Josh had been placed in the Scott County Jail where he shared a four-man cell with Jeffrey Rogers, an accused child molester, and Samuel Wade Howard, who was facing a first-degree murder charge for shooting and killing his father-in-law. Now, the fourth man in that cell was Joseph Flores, but we're not going to talk about him right now. We're going to talk about him in a minute. On August 6th, Jeffrey Rogers reached out to Sheriff Bill Farrell and told him that Josh had confessed to him that he'd killed Michelle. And Josh also talked in his sleep about the case, according to Jeff Rogers. On August 10th, another of the cellmates, Samuel Wade Howard, he talked to Brenda Schwitz and Don Howard, and he told them that Josh had also confessed the same to him the previous Sunday. Josh had told him that he killed Michelle because she wouldn't go out with him, and there was another person with him when he'd shot her but Josh hadn't given this individual's name. Howard said he believed Josh was capable of murder because his nerves were bad, he was real jumpy, and when he talked in his sleep, he would often cry out, Michelle. Yeah, and before before we continue right here, it kind of just reaffirms what we were saying earlier, right? You have someone who heard something, and then it, you, know, you have the telephone game where people are exaggerating a story that they have heard from someone else, or even if they had heard it from themselves, to try to get themselves a deal. They're in prison. They really got no way out. What do they honestly have to lose? An obstruction charge, you know, filing a a false report, like big deal, slap on the wrist when you consider some of the charges that these guys are in there for. There should be harsher charges for it, to be honest with you. And a lot of the times there's not, but there should be severe consequences, especially if someone loses their freedom because of it. Right. There should be some retroactive punishment charges that come into play where if if these statements that were proven to be false and known to be false by the people conveying them, there should be some harsh penalties that come into effect for them even after the fact. Um, That's a different conversation for a different day. But it all makes sense. We talked about this a lot at the beginning. You have people who know this is a big case. They get they get an impression from investigators when they come in that they mention the name Michelle Lawless. They see their eyes perk up. You know, they see them sit up in their chairs, get detectives get all excited. So they know they got them. And then they elaborate on the story. They ex- they exaggerate the circumstances, not realizing that it's affecting another human being. So and, and I know you talked about this new these two new people who came into the picture. Again, same situation where they're in a cell with this guy. They know what he's in for. And they're going to who even knows if any any of this is true. He was yelling. He was saying Michelle in his sleep is really. Yeah, I doubt it's that's true. what we're going with. So here's I my mean, question, because the first four men who came forward were in the Cape Girardeau, um jail. These yeah. two guys were with Josh in the Scott County jail, which is the jail that, you know, Sheriff Bill Farrell works at. Brenda Schwitz works at, et cetera. Is it possible that when these two witnesses, um, Sean Mangus and Chuck Weisinger, were like, uh, we we made it all up, 
Schwitz or Farrell or both or someone else there was like, well, we've got to sort of fill these holes. And we got these like really bad dudes. I mean, like a, a murderer, like child molester. Let's see if we can sort of like grease their palms and have them say what we want them to say so that we don't have like holes in our testimony here. Hey, did uh, did Josh say anything to you guys while you were in there? Did you hear anything? Because I'll tell you what, if you heard something. It would really help us out and it could really help you out. You help us. We could help you. Right. Could they put have, that's like the that's a, that's the, the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. Right. Where it's like they just asked them a question and they ran with it. Mm-hmm. But there's another side to it where it was more it was more under the, the table. Kind of yeah. like, hey, listen, you heard him say something. Right. You know, you're looking to get out of prison at some point, aren't you? We might be able to expedite that. That's that's worst case scenario. So could be somewhere in between there, but it could be as minimal as, like you said, them going into the into a prison cell or catching them on the side and saying, hey, listen, while Josh was in the cells with you, did he ever say anything about Michelle or killing a girl or anything Shooting like that? Shooting someone. Shooting yeah. someone, something that, you know, we weren't supposed to hear because if you have something, we may be able to help. If you help us out, we may be able to help you out as well. And from there, it doesn't take a genius to 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 say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I heard something. And they start throwing stuff out there and seeing what sticks. Because it seems kind of convenient, you know, two witnesses. Yeah, especially back, if, it, if word was starting to get out that they were retracting their statements. Yeah. Absolutely. Because that's the case, right? Case is gone. Yeah. Unless, unless you have someone else. So, yeah, it would make a lot of sense that at minimum, they would be going to other people who were in cells with this person at some point. In proximity with Josh where they could have heard him confess. Right. Yeah. To get to get more statements because the first ones just got just got thrown in the yeah, trash. crumbled, right? Mm-hmm. So on October 7th, Josh Keezer sat down in a room at the Sands Motel in Cape Girardeau for a polygraph exam. He was alone in the room with B.J. Linnesum, who'd been hired by the prosecution to conduct the exam, and he was not allowed to have David Rosner of his legal team present during the exam. Linnesum's report stated that Josh had not been telling the entire truth when answering the test questions, although there was no further clarification of what the entire truth was and no graph with the actual results was included with the report. By this time, the AG's office had sent seasoned prosecutor Kenny Halshiff to assist newbie Christy Baker Neal with the case. Halshiff had come to specialize in small-town murder cases, but years later, his integrity would come into question when in 2013, a Missouri court had found flaws with four different murder convictions that all involved Halshiff as the prosecutor. In 2010, Judge Warren McElwin declared that Dal Helmig, a man convicted of killing his mother in 1993, was innocent, and he declared that Helmig was the victim of a fundamental miscarriage of justice. And specifically, this judge criticized Kenny Halshiff's behavior, citing several instances where Halshiff had provided testimony that was later proven to be completely false, such as the fact that Dal Helmig had admitted to killing his mother. Even though Halshiff had been under a micro scope, he'd used his tough-on-crime record to run for Congress, where he served for six terms. Now, the feeling of this whole thing is that Kenny Halshiff was going to get his man. He was going to get a conviction, no matter what the cost. So it was probably incredibly maddening for him as the case against Josh Kieser began to fall apart with each passing week. And I mean, like, I'm 
touching the tip of the iceberg with Kenny Halshiff because I found tons and tons of articles with people just ripping him apart and being like, why is it that every time somebody's like falsely convicted, you're in the picture, dude? Like pretty much that was, you know, the the long and short of it. Like there was a case after case after case where Kenny Halshiff had, I mean, been involved with putting innocent people into prison and at some point it was like, did you know they were innocent? Because you just made up evidence <laughs> in some of these cases. So it kind of seemed like maybe that was his MO for a little while. And I don't know if he ever really faced any repercussions for that, by the way, which is odd. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've never heard of the guy. I don't know any specifics about it. But based on what you're telling me, not good and should have been held responsible for some of it. But... Again, I'm looking at it from 36,000 feet. I don't know the specifics of it. So shitty, not good. Yeah, I mean, when you see a pattern of behavior like that, you kind of wonder, is it a coincidence? Uh, Does a coincidence happen that many times? Or was this intentional because you were trying to make a name for yourself so that you could go into politics, which is what happened? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Could be. It's definitely possible and wouldn't be the first time something like that happened where you have people who in their minds justify what they're doing because they feel it's for the greater cause right it may not even be a political aspiration it could be something where it's like hey listen you know i gotta i gotta skirt the line because these guys are bad and it's my job to get them off the street and sometimes the lines get a little blurry but that's just the nature of the game that's how they're justifying it in their head that's not how it is it's not a gray area it's black and white Either it fits or it doesn't. Either it's false or it's true. Either it's one or it's a zero. That's it. But, you know, that's how in their minds they would justify, you know, the actions uh, that are taken in the short term for the for the greater good is is what's important. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, like I said, a pattern of behavior that kind of makes you feel like this person had to be incredibly delusional or no. Yeah. That he was intentionally like creating evidence and saying things in court that were not true that ended up with people who should not have been convicted being convicted. On February 15, 1994, Wade Howard also recanted his statement against Josh during an interview with David Rosner. Howard admitted that Josh had actually told him several times that he had nothing to do with the murder and, quote, anything that I told Sheriff Farrell about Josh Keezer shooting Michelle Lawless was something of a misunderstanding. And, of course, Farrell only wanted to hear one thing. Sheriff Farrell pressured and intimidated the hell out of me and made it clear to me that he just wanted me to say that Josh killed Michelle. Michelle Lawless or that Josh said he killed Lawless, end quote. On April 11th, Josh's other cellmate, Jeffrey Roger, was questioned by Josh's attorney, Al Lowe's, during a deposition. And during this deposition, Rogers pretty much responded like, listen, I'm not going to say anything. I am negotiating with the AG's office and the Scott County Prosecutor's office on a deal. And my attorney told me this morning that all I needed to do was show up and shut up. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to say anything, which doesn't sound like somebody who has like legit information that he wants to share, because at that point, he's like, I'm working on a deal for me in exchange for this information. So I'm not going to tell you this information. Like I'm not going to say anything. Now, like I said, Josh shared the cell with a fourth person, Joseph Flores. Brenda Schitz and Sheriff Bill Farrell had interviewed this fourth cellmate before Josh's trial. And according to Brenda's notes, you know, the ones that conveniently didn't make it to the defense team, 
Flores had claimed that Josh had told him the authorities had mixed him up with someone else and he'd been in another state at the time of Michelle's murder. Flores said he never heard Josh confess to anything. He wasn't crying out Michelle's name in his sleep. Everything that these other two guys were saying was pretty much false or had happened when Flores wasn't around and they're in prison. So I don't know how often, you know, they're just sitting in the cell when they don't have to be. They're not in prison. They're in county jail. I don't think you can just walk around when you're in county jail, to be honest. I, it's not like prison where you can just go and like play cards. I think you have to like stay in the cell. On June 17, 1994, Kenny Halshef appeared at a hearing during which a decision would be made on some pretrial motions, including the motion to disqualify Al Lowe's and David Rosner as Josh's attorneys. Halshef claimed that Rosner had made himself a witness in the case when two people who had previously given evidence against Josh recanted in the presence of Rosner. Those two people, Sean Mangus and Jeffrey Howard, were now claiming that they had been threatened by David Rosner and they were scared, which is why they'd withdrawn their statements. But now they were ready to testify to their original stories at trial, the original stories they told law enforcement, which was that they had heard Josh confess to Michelle's murder. Rosner was the only person who could refute their testimony, and case law required him to voluntarily withdraw from Josh's defense or be disqualified by a judge, and this would also mean that the firm he worked for could no longer represent Josh. The judge asked Josh if he understood what all of that meant, and if he still wanted Al Lowe's and David Rosner to represent him, to which Josh responded that he did, and he did, and so the state's motion was overruled. And this would sort of come back to haunt them. But let's take our last break and we'll be right back. When the trial began, Mark Abbott was the state's star witness. And when he was asked in court to indicate the person he had seen in the parking lot of the Cut Mart, Mark pointed to Josh Keezer. Mark also said that he'd heard Deputy Drury call him by his brother Matt's name that night at the sheriff's office. But he also said that Drury had asked him as he was walking out, like, oh, are you still living in the trailer park? And since that was Mark's current address, he just assumed that Drury knew who he was. And so he didn't, I guess, correct him when he called him Matt. He just thought he accidentally called him Matt. Mark said he did go back to the scene of the crime on the interstate for a few minutes after he left the sheriff's office because he was curious about what was going on. And then Josh's attorney, Al Lowe's, focused on Mark's original description of the man he'd seen in the cut mark parking lot. Because remember that Mark had referred to this guy as dark complected, possibly Hispanic. And Lowe's basically asked Mark, like, look at Josh Keezer right now in court. Does he look Hispanic to you. And Mark responded, yeah, kind of. And Al Lowe says, he looks Hispanic to you. And Mark replied, his shape, not his tone. Lowe's asked Mark, how many Hispanic people have you seen with blue eyes? Because if you've seen pictures of Josh, he has like bright blue eyes. And Mark responded, I don't know. I don't pay attention to stuff like that. Mark also said that Josh didn't look specifically dark complected that day in court, but he could have had a tan when he saw him in November because everyone knows how sunny and warm it is in November. Sean Mangus also testified, sticking to his original statement that Josh had confessed to him about killing Michelle, and he claimed that David Rosner had told him that Josh was making some phone calls and he was in danger. So basically, Sean Mangus was like, oh, the only reason I recanted was because David Rosner basically came in and alluded to the fact that Josh, who is a part of this like violent gang, was making phone calls 
and I felt I was in danger. So that's why I recanted. And that's why I sent Josh an apology letter saying I was sorry. And that's why I, you know, sent um, Chuck Weisinger letters saying like, oh, I finally told the truth. I was just letting Chuck know that this is what we were doing now because we were in danger. But I couldn't say that we were in danger in the letters. So yeah, basically, this was the excuse that Sean Mangus used for completely recanting and then going back to his original statement. And maybe it wasn't hard for the jury to believe that this was possible, since it would be hammered into their heads throughout the trial that Josh was a member of a dangerous and violent gang. And, you know, people in gangs usually look out for their own, like they'll protect each other and they'll try to keep each other out of trouble. Since David Rosner could not be called as a witness to refute anything that Sean Mangus was claiming, the jury only heard one side of the story, and they weren't even told the reason why Rosner was not able to get on the witness stand and tell his side. Stephen Graw also testified, but now he was claiming that Josh had confessed to killing Michelle directly to him outside of Stacy Reed's house. So instead of hearing Josh confessed to Sean. Now Stephen is saying, oh, he confessed to me outside of the house. But he also gave an incorrect date for when this happened, claiming it was sometime in late January or February. And he said he remembered this specific date because it was a couple of days after he'd gotten married and his new wife had given birth to their child. Now, this could not have happened at that time because Al Lowe's who's Josh's lawyer, he was able to show evidence that Stacy Reed had been evicted from her apartment the first week of January, so they couldn't have been at her place in late January or early February. Lowe's also had a statement from Stephen Graw's wife that she'd written on September 2nd, and it said, quote, In late August 1993, Steve Graw told me that he was fixing to get a $25,000 reward for saying that a Josh shot the lawless girl in Benton. I believe that Steve would lie to either get a reward or to help him get out of trouble. Steve always lies, and I'm sure he's lying about this Josh guy and lawless, end quote. It's interesting that you bring up the $25,000 reward because I was just covering a case on Detective Perspective about Ashley Olette. Have you ever heard of that case? No. Okay. It's this young girl. She was 15 years old. She was killed in Maine. And they. it's, it's interesting because I didn't always see this before. But in that case, almost immediately, the family came out and was like, hey, we want to give a $10,000 reward for information leading to, to finding out who killed her. And detectives were like, no, no, let's hold off for right now. Let's just wait. And then eventually they did let them put up 10000 and then it was 20000 et cetera. But the reason I bring it up is because I said in that episode that, you know, although some people are like, why wouldn't they let them just put out the money right away? This is the reason why. This is the reason why. Because when you have money attached to it, even if it's not the case, it taints the information slightly because the question always comes into play. Are they telling the truth? Or are they doing this for the money? And in the case that I was just referring to, they didn't get anything. So obviously at some point the detective said, hey, okay, you can offer a reward. That's why you're going to do it. But when you have money attached to it, it's going to bring people out of the woodwork. Maybe it brings forward someone who actually has information, but you also run the risk of having someone come forward who's looking for a financial uh, reward out of it and may not know anything about the case whatsoever. And even if you don't have this statement where she's saying, oh, he said he's going to get this money for some Josh, not even the, you know, Josh, but like, all I got to do is say it's a Josh and I'm getting 25 K that's the worst case scenario. But you could have also a situation where the person comes forward and they might've seen something, but just like the witnesses we were talking about earlier, 
it's not enough to lead to a conviction. So they'll embellish or fill in the blanks or say whatever detectives want them to say in order to cross that finish line to get the money. Because it's not usually just $25,000 for information. It's $25,000 leading to a conviction. So you got to right. you got to get them there. Yeah, you got to get in there. And that's the problem. Rewards are great. I understand why we have them. But this is the issues you run into. Even when it's someone who's telling the truth, the defense team will bring this into question. They always will. I don't even think there was a $25,000 reward on the table. I thought it was like 10000 So For this particular case. But maybe he thought or maybe maybe he was told by someone mm. it could be 25000 Again, right. these are the conversations that don't make the police reports. He got 25 Gs from somewhere. Mm. Yeah, I don't know where, mm -hmm. but someone during their conversations, during their interactions, alluded to the idea that maybe it was ten thousand for one part, and then another fifteen for who knows, or maybe they just embellished the number because they knew he was embellishing. Maybe it was both sides of it, but ten thousand, twenty-five thousand, big difference. But either way, when there's money attached to it, you're gonna get all the characters who come out, and you have to sift between bullshit and truth, and. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's just a bunch of bullshit. Nobody's telling the truth and they're all looking for the money. So it's interesting that it came up in this case because we just had it happen. And unfortunately, in that one, they didn't have anybody come forward. But the other side to that coin is you have someone come forward, but they're not telling the truth. I would much rather have no one come forward because at least in that situation, you don't have someone on trial for a crime they didn't commit. Yeah, I just feel like law enforcement in this case knew all these people were lying, <laughs> but it was convenient. I, I it was convenient for them to be lying. So it was like, whatever, whatever we got to tell them, whatever they, know the they case. have to think. Yeah, they know the case. They know when things aren't lighting up and when they are lining yeah. up and they could just be claim, you know, ignorance. Oh, we didn't know. But I agree with you. They got they got tunnel vision on Josh very early on. And anybody who came forward, who fit that narrative, mm -hmm. was was now their best friend. Mm -hmm. Yep. Simple. So um, Josh's ex-girlfriend, Amanda Drury, also testified at the trial. And she said, as far as she knew, Josh had not killed Michelle. She'd never seen him with a gun. And, quote, when I was interviewed by the police, it seemed they, namely Brenda Schwitz and Bill Farrell, just wanted me to say that Josh Keezer killed Michelle. I was enticed by them by the possibility of receiving the $10,000 reward, but I didn't tell them that Josh killed her because I had no reason to believe that Josh did it, end quote. Now, Deputy Brenda Schwitz was asked on the stand, why had she never taken Mark Abbott's blood to compare with the blood found at the crime scene, even though she, you know, he had offered it? And she said, well, this hadn't been done because Mark Abbott was not a suspect at the time of the murder or any other time for that matter, which, once again, based on her notes. Yeah, it's a lie. That was a lie. She how, lied how under oath. How can you sit here? How can you? I don't. This is where they lose all credibility for me, because. I'm only looking at it from an outside perspective, right? I'm sitting here listening and watching just like everybody else. And I have a little bit of an, an, a law enforcement background, but I think any person with half a brain would look at this and say, oh yeah, I mean, Mark's got to be on the list. Right? He's got to be on the list. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to, you know, you're going to charge him with a crime, but he's got to be on the list at least. To say he was never even considered a suspect is ridiculous. 
So Al Lowe's also talked to five people in Kankakee who testified that Josh was there on the night of Michelle's murder. And many people had a clear memory of this because it happened to be the same day that Josh's cousin, Michael, had been in a car crash. Brenda Garduno said that Josh was at her house on November 7th because his cousin Michael was living with her and her daughter Christina had been in the car with Michael that day when he'd been in an accident. She said Josh showed up around 11.30 p.m. that night to see if his cousin was okay, and when Brenda said Michael was all right and sleeping, he left. Catherine Smith, Josh's aunt, also remembered talking to Josh on the phone that day twice between 4 and 6 p.m., and Teresa Griffey, who said Josh was staying at her place at the time of the car accident, which would have been November 7th. She remembered that he'd left when he heard about the accident to go check on his cousin. He returned a little bit later on, at which point he got into an argument with another girl who was living there. I guess Teresa said she had to intervene and she was finally able to get Josh to calm down around 3 a.m. So even if we take away uh, Teresa Griffey's statement, we can't have Josh checking on his cousin in Kankakee around 11.30 p.m. and then drive 350 miles in two hours to be at the Benton exit to shoot Michelle Lawless, a person that even Sheriff Bill Farrell admitted Josh had no known connection to. So it seemed that the testimony was going in the defense's favor until the state popped up with a surprise witness, one of Michelle's best friends and somebody we've talked about before, Chantel Kreider. Chantel claimed that she'd been watching the trial when she realized that she recognized Josh. She said she'd seen him the previous October at the Halloween party she, Michelle, and Lelisha had attended at John Worley's trailer. Chantel said that every Everyone was standing outside of the trailer, drinking around the bonfire, when she and Michelle went into the trailer to use the bathroom. As they were walking out, a boy she hadn't known at the time, but now recognized as Josh Keezer, approached them and tried to kiss her. But she said no. This boy then asked Michelle out, and when she said no, he got mad, called Michelle a stupid bitch, and then kind of like stormed away. And Chantel said she was pretty sure he was drunk. She also said as they were leaving the party around midnight, Josh approached their car and asked if he could get a ride. He grabbed the door handle and the girl said no and kept driving. And then Josh like kept holding onto the door handle and yelling after them to stop driving as they drove away. During the trial, Chantel looked at Josh and stated, I remember his face. There's no doubt in my mind that he was at the party, end quote. But once again, There were plenty of people in Kankakee who remembered Josh being there on Halloween night. So not only on the night of September 7th, but on the night that he was supposedly at this Halloween party. His aunt Kathy claimed she'd bought a bunch of Halloween candy for Josh and his cousin James to pass out to trick-or-treaters, but when she got home from work, she saw that the boys had eaten most of the candy and she found them in the garage playing loud music, which is where they still were when she left the house around 9 p.m. Angela Marcotte said she picked Josh up on Halloween night as it was getting dark and she took him and some other friends to Angie Graham's for trick-or-treating. One of these other friends was David Griffey, Teresa Griffey's son, who said that he and Josh both dressed up like ninjas that night and they went trick-or-treating with their friends. He also believed Josh had spent the night at his place that evening. Despite all of these witnesses seeing Josh in Kankakee on the night of Michelle's murder and seeing Josh in Kankakee on Halloween night when he supposedly had John Worley's trailer for the party, the jury took only three hours to come back with a verdict of guilty on both counts. 
I don't really know what to say to this because here's the thing. It's not computing in my head. And, and that's probably why Josh is a free man today. Cause I'm, I'm, I can't make rational sense of it because let's be honest, it doesn't make sense. You have something that is fact-based, right? It mm-hmm. is physically impossible unless he's going, unless he's consistently going 120 miles per hour for two hours straight it's a physical impossible and to have a vehicle that would even be capable of going that fast. All right. I'm talking just crazy right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's physically impossible for him to get to the location where the victim is killed in time. How does that supersede someone potentially seeing him at a birthday party or would you say a Halloween party? How long before that? That was a different night. Oh, so the Halloween party was like, I don't know, a week and a half. I'm talking about. Yeah. Chantel claimed she saw Josh at the Halloween party like a week and a half before. That's what I'm saying. Michelle's murder. Let's say that's true. Mm -hmm. Let's just say it's true. Mm -hmm. Let's say he gave her his ID. They took a photo together and he's there. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. (laughs) That doesn't he could even have said to her, I'm going to kill Michelle at some point. He didn't do it that night. Not if he's. 350 miles away. I guess the jury could have thought that the witnesses were like lying for him and saying he was in King. I guess that's what it comes into, right? Like, I guess that's what it comes down to is who's more believable, right? Like I asked you something at the very beginning. So I posed the question. I think it was episode one because in your teaser, you, you talk about Josh Mm -hmm. and I had said something along the lines of it's really, it's not just a, a police department thinking Josh is guilty, right? A jury found him guilty. And how does that happen? How do I think I said, how do we got, how do we get to that point? And I think honestly, the answer is what you just said. There were witnesses that would provide exculpatory evidence. Mm -hmm. And there were other witnesses that provided inculpatory evidence. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, because we're going off the words on a sheet of paper, whatever was said at trial, whatever tone, intonation, whatever the appearances were, however the delivery was, whatever their confidence level is was when they were delivering their statements on the stand, whatever it was, the jury found the prosecution's witnesses more believable than the defense's because, and we know that's a fact, because if it wasn't and they were just going based on what everyone said, this man couldn't have done it. But yet, he was found guilty. So I really think that's what it boils down to. It wasn't a matter of like a smoking gun because clearly there was no smoking gun. He didn't do it. But what it was is even though Josh had people who defended him and put him in a different place at the time when Michelle was killed, the jury just didn't buy it. They didn't believe the witnesses and they probably didn't like Josh mm-hmm. because of how he was painted how he's by the prosecution. Yeah. So they're looking at him. Oh, he's this big, bad Latin king. All his friends, if they're mm-hmm. friends with him, even if they're not in the gang, they're guilty by association. They're bad or people. Or they're just and, afraid. Into. So they're going to say what he wants them to oh, say. Oh, that's another angle. Because that's, that's what I was angle. thinking too, right? Like you had those witnesses. Sean Mangus was like, oh, I did recant my statement. But then I was threatened by Josh's lawyer basically saying like his gang friends are going to come and get me. So now the jury's thinking, well, did Josh's gang friends tell um, you know, these these women to to lie and say that they saw Josh on November 7th. And I mean, they would. Right. They live in Kankakee, where apparently Josh is running with the Latin Kings. So maybe they're being threatened. So we don't believe them because they're compromised. Yeah, you ain't wrong. 
That's a lot, but it, ultimately it's witness credibility. Mm-hmm. Jury jury found the witnesses for the prosecution to be more believable for whatever reason. And I do think that is the one hindrance, the one downfall to looking at these cases as podcasters because you can read as many books as you want. You can read the transcripts, but being in that room is different, right? Because we're just looking at it from whatever they're saying, the transcripts that you have, where what was their tone? What was their body language? What was their behavior? Maybe it wasn't even deception. Maybe it was just nerves. And for whatever reason, the jury picked up believed on it. Yeah. the prosecuting witnesses more than the defense's witnesses. And ultimately they said, yeah, we hear both sides, but clearly somebody's lying here and we think it's the defense witnesses. That's what we think. He's guilty, period. And that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate because clearly as, as we sit here now, uh, he wasn't guilty. So the jury has to live with that one. Mm-hmm. How many years did he do? Are we going to get into that? How many years he did prison? Um, I, I don't recall off the top of my head right now, but definitely over a, a decade. So so they took a man, this man's 12 years of this man's life, right? Was it a 12 or 13? I you said over a decade. Was it 10 exactly or over? I said over a decade. Okay. Well, let me just go with 10. Yeah. Okay. So at least 10 years of mm-hmm. this man's life, mm-hmm. never get it back. Even though he's walking around today, he's never going to get it back. And that falls at the feet of a lot of people. But also the jury, right? They got it wrong. Now they're doing their job and maybe they did the best they could. And based on what they were presented, that's what they believed. But a lot of injustices here. And I, th- I think the most weight falls at the law enf- at the law enforcement agency putting this case together, mm-hmm. ignoring all of the obvious signs that this man wasn't responsible for mm-hmm. this crime. And then, uh, and then also the prosecution, seeing how shitty this case really was and can <laughs> continue to move forward yeah. with it. They all had it out for this kid. And, uh, they were going to do what they could to to hold someone responsible for Michelle's murder. And, and they got the wrong guy. Yeah, obviously I have no proof of this. It's just an inference. But I truly believe if Josh had not been a part of the Latin Kings, he would not have been found guilty. I think that really just soiled his reputation in the eyes of the jury. If he was a gang member, he was willing to do anything. He definitely had to have been violent and he would have a whole gang of other violent people ready to come in, intimidate witnesses, have his back, et cetera, et cetera, maybe even help him with the murder. He was capable of anything at that point in their eyes. And it really didn't matter what anyone said. Completely agree. Completely agree. They made up their mind. Judge judge the book by its cover. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in the days after Josh's conviction, though, the local papers were printing the details of the trial, including the state surprise witness, Chantel Kreider, and her sudden memory of seeing Josh at a Halloween party, which finally connected him to Michelle Lawless, right? Not only did it give him this connection to Michelle, like, oh, he did know her, but it also kind of gave him a motive because she turned him down. And remember, a couple of the witnesses had said, oh, well, Josh killed her because she wouldn't go out with him. So now everything's sort of gelling together. So a young woman named Lacey Warren was reading the papers, and she read that Chantel Kreider had claimed Josh had been at the Warley trailer for the Halloween party. And she knew that wasn't true because Lacey herself had been at this party with a friend of hers, Dawn Worley. In fact, Dawn Worley lived at the trailer, and both girls had known pretty much everyone at the party except for like a couple boyfriends that people had brought along, and also the two people that Michelle had brought with her, Lelisha O'Dell and Chantel Kreider. So Lacey brought the paper to her friend, Don Worley, and she was like, read this and tell me what you think. Like, I'm not going to say anything. Just tell me what you think. And so Don read the story. And then she said, that was either. 
either a downright lie or she was grossly mistaken, referring to Chantel Kreider. So both women went to Josh's lawyer and signed affidavits stating that Josh Kieser, a person they had never met or seen before in their lives, had certainly not been present at the Halloween party. Dawn said that she'd seen Michelle making out with Todd Mayberry. They'd been kissing for some time. They seemed to be getting along just fine. And that at around like 1030 or 11 p.m., Dawn had seen Michelle get into a black Ford Bronco driven by a guy named Mark, who Dawn knew because he'd worked at Raven Tire in Sykeston with her boyfriend and her brother. Now, I wonder if this was the Mark that Michelle was referring to in her diary. Literally, as you were saying it, I'm like, well, here's another Another Mark Mark." in a black truck. Although a Bronco, I don't think could be considered a small black truck, but still. Maybe this person has another truck or maybe they're in a friend's truck or maybe they're not alone. You know, I mean, there's a million reasons, but here's another Mark that's in the picture. Was this Mark vetted? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Probably not. So the, she gets into this truck with Mark and um, also Lelisha and Chantel were in the truck. They were in the back. Michelle was up front with Mark and they they went off somewhere. I don't know where. And they'd gotten back around midnight or 1230, at which point the three girls had gotten into Michelle's car and left. Dawn said there was no altercation. No one was chasing their car. And she even included in her affidavit a list of 45 names of people who had been at that party. And obviously Josh Keezer's name was not on the list. Dawn Worley had never seen him before. The statements of Don Worley and Lacey Warren would be the first of many people who would come forward with information that they knew, things that they had heard and what they had seen. And their claims would sort of start to shine a light and point a finger at other people besides Josh Keezer, people like Mark Abbott and Kevin Williams and Matt Abbott and even Larry Abbott. And it would kind of show that there was a thriving drug trade happening in southeast Missouri. And maybe there was a sheriff locally who may have been more involved than he would like anyone to know. And a young man who had somehow been found guilty of a crime for which there was zero evidence of him having committed. So everything would start to fall into place. A bunch of people are going to reach out to Al Lowe's. A bunch of people are going to reach out to a PI that Josh's mother hired to help her out and help her exonerate her son. And everything's going to start to fall in place, especially in, you know, just a couple months after Josh's trial when something called Operation Speed Bump happens, which is this like huge drug bust in the area that a bunch of people we've already talked about have gotten caught up in. Interesting episode. I mean, there's obviously an injustice here, but even at the end of the episode, when you mention just in passing this guy, Mark, that Michelle was with at this party, it just shows how shoddy this investigation was because we're just we're just covering the case after the fact. And We've already pointed out someone who should have been looked into, and maybe they were. But if they were, that wasn't brought up at trial. There was nothing else brought up. I mean, we don't know. So it's one of those things where— I don't think Dawn um, Worley even knew his last name. She said—I forget exactly, but she said, oh, she thought his last name started with an L, but she knew him just from working. I'm sure they could have figured out who it was. Right, right, yeah. They could have gone to Raven Tire and gotten their employee list. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. they could have figured out who it was. And that's just the whole point here. Like, I know— Over the last three episodes, we've been talking a lot about Mark Abbott, and I know that the consensus is that he he was somehow involved from a lot of the people who are familiar with this case. And I'm not saying he wasn't, but I am saying that when we're going off the investigation of a police department that at minimum didn't know what they were doing, 
everything's fair game. And and nothing surprises me with cases like this where, yeah, it may seem like the obvious person is the person, but there could because the investigation is so shoddy, would I be shocked to find out that the person, if they, we, you know, we 10 years down the road, we end up finding out that it's this guy named William who was a hitchhiker walking down the road that they just never, who, who was on camera or whatever, or who somebody knew, wouldn't surprise me because they were so focused on Josh Keezer, right? They were so focused on building a case against him that they might've been missing the more obvious point. So it's one of those things where you got Mark in a journal entry and we never had any information about who that Mark was. But again, par for the course, this case may have been solvable at some point. But unless someone comes forward and confesses now, and I know we still have a whole nother episode to go, mm-hmm. I, I, I like to, I hate to lose hope, but it, it's because of how, how bad the foundation of this investigation yeah, is. Yeah, you've got and no because, physical evidence left at this point, so it would have to yeah. be like somebody yeah. like someone AKA would have to come Mark forward Abbott and say I did it, just being like, yeah, actually, I did it. If he did it, if he did it, if he did it, OJ, if he did it, <laughs> and I mean, listen, I know it, it is possible he didn't do it. Now I know there's more to go. I and mean, we'll see, but I, yeah, of course it's po- he's not he hasn't been proven to have done it, so of course it's possible right. that he didn't do it. Right. But I mean, if maybe... I if I if you put a gun to my head, any one of the guns that Josh Keezer apparently had, <laughs> if you put a gun to my head and you said you have to choose somebody in this case right now who has the highest probability of being involved in her murder, I'm going to say Mark Abbott, right? Yeah, I mean the thing is too, like with this case. You have Mark Abbott. If you're looking at this as an investigator, you have Mark Abbott and you have Josh Keezer, right? You do have people, if you're taking them at face value, saying, oh, Josh admitted to doing it, right? With 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 Mark, all you really have him as is a witness and maybe given some statements that didn't line up perfectly. But the, what I'm, the moral of the story is you don't have enough to charge Mark Abbott mm-hmm. and you definitely don't have enough to charge Josh Keezer. So yeah, the, the, the truth of this situation is no one should have been charged at this point because I don't think you have enough for anybody at this point, which is why we're sitting here today. You didn't have enough for Josh. You don't have enough for Mark and you don't really have any enough for anybody else. But they were at a point where you have people telling them that he admitted to doing it and they went all in on that. They put all their chips into the middle of the pot and said, let's see what happens. Theoretically, let's say Sheriff Bill Farrell knew Mark Abbott was guilty, but he also knew, and this is just theoretical, like I'm writing fiction, but he also knew that Mark Abbott was involved in like dealing meth in the area. And he knew that Mark knew he may have been involved on some level with this meth deal, he might say like, well, why am I going to throw this kid under the bus and then have myself thrown under the bus? I need to protect him. And it can be anybody else. I don't care who, but it cannot be him. I cannot let him go like under a microscope for this. Of course. Anything's possible. Theoretically. Yeah. Anything's possible. We'll see. We'll see what happens. On to part five. Any final words from you? No, that's it. It's one one twenty in the morning and I think it's time for bed. Absolutely. You guys be safe out there. We appreciate you being here on the episode. If you haven't already, like, comment, subscribe on the video. If you're listening on audio, please leave a five-star review where you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Really do appreciate it. Helps us get in the charts, helps more people see the episodes, hear the episodes, which will ultimately, I don't know, maybe help solve a case one day. That's the hope, right? Any final words? No, Stephanie? I don't. All right. Everyone have a good night. Be safe out there. We'll see you soon. Bye.